The scripture reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It can be found on page 836 in the Black Bibles. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jay and Joe and, uh, and Daniel and team. Thank you all as well. That was awesome. We are beginning uh, a brand new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Those were the first words in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to be doing kind of a little bit of an introduction uh, to Mark. But I think important to kind of set some grounding for where we hope to go here in the, in the next several weeks. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look into his word. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy and your love. We do pray, God, that you would uh, lead us as we now attend to your word. And we ask that you would meet us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1942, the English scholar and author C.S. Lewis made a speech. And there's a part of that speech that he contained he grabbed and he came and he put it in his very famous book that he wrote defending the Christian faith uh, called mere Christianity and he wrote it uh, because he was trying to answer several of the claims of people in the mid 20th century remember this is 1942 people in the mid-20th century who were skeptical about the truth of the Bible or the claims of Jesus. Uh, so the, the, the claim of the skeptic in the 20th century was that Jesus was a good man, he was a good moral teacher, that we as human beings could learn a lot uh, about how to live good lives by following the example of Jesus, but we simply could not accept his claim of divinity. We could not, as modern people in the 20th century, accept his claim that he is God or that he did miracles or that he rose again bodily, physically from the dead on the third day. Those skeptics would say, we know that can't be true because that would involve the supernatural and the supernatural doesn't happen because it's against nature these kind of things can't be replicated in the laboratory and so they can't be true to counter this claim this is what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity he said I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing 
that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was, try- that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, this long statement from C.S. Lewis has come down through time to be known as C.S. Lewis's trilemma. Even though he didn't make it up, he did write it down in its kind of most uh, recognizable form. The trilemma is that Jesus claimed to be God Therefore, you have to make a decision. Either he was a liar, in which case he would not be a great moral teacher because that's against being a great moral teacher, or he was a lunatic, he was simply crazy, or it is true, and Jesus was who he said he was. He is the Lord. Well, those were the good old days of the 20th century. Now we're in the 21st century where if this were a multiple choice test, there would be another option added to it. In the 21st century, since we have moved away from modernity, which actually believes that the text could be true, into what other people have called late modernity or maybe post-modernity, where people are skeptical of the text itself, if A is Jesus is a liar, and B is Jesus is a lunatic, and C is Jesus is the Lord, there is now an option D. And option D is none of the above. Because in post-modernity, people say, Jesus never made those claims in the first place. You don't have to choose who Jesus is or if Jesus is who he claimed he was because he never said that he was God and he never did anything in his life that would demonstrate that he was God. But that raises a question, doesn't it? Because you read the Bible, you read the Gospels and you say, wait a minute, I was reading the Bible and he said exactly that. He said that, and then Paul and the other apostles, they backed him up on it. But the reply to this in our current day and age is this. Sure, if you read the text that we have now, you will see that there are some claims of deity made by Jesus, and there are some actions that only God could do, but Jesus never actually said those things, and he never did those things. You see, you can't trust the text These texts, a skeptic would claim now, were not written when they claimed to be written. They would have been written, they would say, you know, many, many years after Jesus lived, maybe hundreds of years after Jesus had lived, and his followers, somebody way down the line, attributed to Jesus words and actions that he neither said nor did. 
But then you would ask, why in the world would anybody do that? Well, there are a number of reasons given. If you ever read the book, The Da Vinci Code, or you ever saw the movie, you get one answer to that question, Dan Brown. Dan Brown would tell you that the long time, like followers of Jesus a long time after his death attributed divinity to Jesus because he wanted to seize power in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was divided, and the way that he thought that he could coalesce the Roman Empire was doing so around Christianity, but to do that, he needed Jesus to be God. And so the claim is, is that the church pronounced him to be God, and then they selected texts that would have backed up that claim. Now, more serious scholars would say, that there was a more benign reason for that. It was simply that over the course of time, followers of Jesus could no longer propagate a religion with only a good moral and ethical teacher as a leader. Uh, now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up, first of all, so that you won't be naive and that you will know what is very likely in the minds of one of your friends or neighbors when you're talking to them about the Bible or you're talking to them uh, about Jesus. Uh, these are certainly the things that your children will be taught when they leave your house and if they uh, go to college and if they ever take a class in like the New Testament, it's not a Christian college, in the New Testament or like the Bible as literature, which is a popular class, this is what they're going to learn. But second, because we come face to face with all of those claims right off the bat at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And we have to examine that. We have to, we have to ask ourselves, can we trust this? Are these true words? I mean, look what, the, what, what Mark says right at the beginning here. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we are beginning this morning a series of sermons where we are going to take those words as true. We are going to take that claim as true. We are going to suggest that these are true words that are absolutely and completely transformative and they in fact demand a response from every single human being that encounters them. And it demands a response with our hearts and our souls and our minds, our very lives. And so by way of focusing our attention on who this Jesus is, who is our King and our Savior, we need to orient ourselves a little bit to this book that we're diving into. And we're going to do that this morning under three categories. The first is the author, the second is the genre, and the third is the subject. The author, the genre, the subject of the gospel of Mark. First, let's look at the author. If you still have your Bible open on your lap and you're looking at the first couple of verses of Mark and you scan your eyes upward, you're going to see a title given to this book in your Bible. It says, The Gospel According to Mark. Now, that leads us to a question, right? Who's Mark? Who is this Mark person and why should I listen to him? It's actually a very good question because by way of full disclosure, it's important to actually understand that internally in the actual words here, this gospel is not attributed to a person named Mark. It's never explicitly attributed to him. It's never actually explicitly attributed 
to anyone. So why is it labeled as such in our Bibles? Well, the Bible introduces us to a man named John Mark who was, as we would see if you're reading the book of Acts in chapter 12 particularly, a close companion of the apostle Peter. He was his traveling companion in his missionary journeys and in his ministries. Uh, There was a leader of the very, very early church, someone who actually lived in the first century and then lived also into the second century, whose name was Papias, who wrote one time that John Mark, who was a traveling companion of Peter, was actually Peter's recording secretary, meaning that Peter would go from place to place and he would preach about Jesus and John Mark would write it down. And so what you actually have in the Gospel of Mark, you can think in your head as the Gospel of Peter. And Peter was one of the 12 apostles. In fact, one of the inner circles of of the, the, the ministry of Jesus. And by the way, you can trust the reliability of the words of Papias because he actually knew personally one of the other apostles, the apostle John, who outlived all of the other apostles, wrote the book of Revelation pretty late in the first century and knew Papias. And he got a lot of his information about the apostles uh, and, and other things from the apostle John himself. Now, This is actually important. I'm going through this in some level of detail because it's important. The first reason it's important is I don't want to stand up here this morning and presume anything. I don't want to presume that you, just because you were here at church this morning, actually believe that the Bible is true or actually believe that this testimony of this person named Mark is true. But second, even for those of you who do trust the scripture who do believe the scriptures it's important for you to every once in a while stop and ask yourself why do I believe this is true is there actually any evidence that this could be true and I'll tell you why because somebody is going to ask you if 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 you are seeking to live your life in, in a way that is consistent with the vision of this church which is to be renewed by God's grace, but also to be an ambassador for Christ in the world, to reach the city for Christ, you are going to talk to a lot of people that do not believe that the Bible could possibly be true or that Jesus could be who he claimed to be. Is there any evidence that these words are reliable? And that's why this is what I want you to take away from this part. By the standards of reliable and trustworthy testimony. The Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels and other parts of the Bible, in fact, not only meet that standard, they exceed that standard. Think about this, uh, these two things right here. Reliable testimony and therefore reliable history requires two or more witnesses to corroborate an event. That's what reliable testimony was and actually is. Mark presents so much of what Jesus did as public ministry. Public ministry. Sometimes Mark and the other gospel writers, this is actually important when you see this in the Bible and I'll tell you why. Mark and other gospel writers actually include the names of people that Jesus ministered to or or, or the names of characters in this story. Do you remember a guy in the Bible named Simon of Cyrene? Have you ever heard that name? Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene was the one, the man that was chosen out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross 
from Jerusalem to the place of the crucifixion. Why do we, why do we know that guy's name? Well, because the author of the Gospels is writing reliable testimony. He is inviting his original readers to say, this actually happened, and if you don't believe me, go ask Simon. It's not that big of a territory. You can, you know, you can run across him. Do you, do you remember the paralytic, if you're familiar with the, the scriptures, the paralytic that was lowered down into the roof? That's a pretty memorable story. People are ripping up a roof and lowering this paralytic down into the midst of Jesus. There, he, he had friends who were lowering him. And, and what do we know about that? particular setting well it was crowded it was so crowded there wasn't enough room in the house there were a ton of people there a ton of people that original readers of these these gospels could go up to and ask did that really happen did Jesus say get up take your bat and walk and did that guy really get up and walk away from that all of the gospel testimony is begging people to go out and seek out eyewitnesses of these events and ask them if they're true. It's reliable testimony. Second, think about the source behind the Gospel of Mark for just a second. The source behind the Gospel of Mark is the Apostle Peter. Now, I've, I've thought about this in my own life a lot. If I were a pre I am a preacher, okay. If I were an apostle, I'm not an apostle, um, and I was walking around with Jesus, which I did not do. But then I was going to preach about it later. Would I make myself look good or would I make myself look bad? How would you handle that? You know, would you make yourself look good or bad in your own testimony about yourself? Well, you know what Peter does? He just tells the truth. He tells the truth. He says things like, yeah, there was that one time when Jesus actually called me Satan and told me to stand behind him. That, that was a bad moment. Now, why does Peter tell that story why does he not embellish that why does he not make himself look a little bit better well for one reason there were ten, I mean Judas was gone by now but but there were 10 other apostles who could say dude that's not how that happened you know uh, Peter you got you got to tell the truth Peter was also the only source for some information that we have in the gospels like the fact that he denied Jesus three times on the eve of the crucifixion. Nobody would know that except for Peter. And it is recorded and written down here in the scriptures. It's reliable testimony from Mark, who is the author. Now let's look at the genre. What kind of literature are we dealing with here when we're talking about the gospel of Mark? Well, the type of literature we're dealing with here is actually told to us in verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, it's a gospel. Meaning uh, it, is, it is the pronouncement of good news. That's what the gospel is. In the ancient world, the word gospel was often used to delineate a herald who would come to a city and would pronounce that the war was over and the good news part of that was your army won. Because the opposite of that was that nobody would come and tell you anything but the other army would just go to your city, burn it down and kill all of you or take you into slavery. So it was very good news when you saw somebody actually running to the city pronouncing the gospel. We won. You will live. It's very good news. And there are two things that we need to understand about what a gospel is in the Bible. First, it is true good news. 
It is true good news. Mark is purporting here to write history. He is purporting to say true things. We've already seen a little earlier a little bit about the standards of history writing and testimony. Mark is setting out to write true things about Jesus. True good news. True good news that could be corroborated by seeking out and asking other eyewitnesses of many of the events that he describes. But second, he is also writing purposeful good news. The gospel of Mark and the other gospels that are contained in your Bible are not only history, they're also theology. Mark is not just a chronicler of events. In other words, he's not just going around writing bullet points. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. He is actually telling a story. He's telling a true story, but it is a story nonetheless, and that story has a central point to it. And the central point to the story that he is telling is announced to us at the very beginning of the book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his claim. This is good news about Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. Now, let me write the rest of the story to tell you why you can believe that this is true. Now, it's important to pause here for just a second because this taps into another common objection that people have regarding the reliability of the Bible, particularly the Gospels, because it is assumed that it is impossible to write both history and theology at the same time. You either write history or you write theology. Why? Well, because history deals with facts and theology deals with faith. If you pay attention and you hear, if you're like, if you're like reading Newsweek or Time or really anything around you know, Easter or Christmas, you know, these are the sorts of things that will get written down. It doesn't really matter if this happened the way that the Bible says it happened. This is what they'll say. Because we're dealing with faith, not facts. Um, that makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever, by the way. Uh, if none of this is true, then I really need to quit and probably make more money because there's nothing else out there you know than than that but uh that makes no sense but that's kind of like what is told out there but either way that's just that's actually not logical that's actually not true think about it this way because if you do read Matthew Mark and Luke and John is kind of a different animal altogether but if you read Matthew Mark and Luke you'll see some some you'll, you'll you won't see inconsistencies but you will see orders of events being different. You'll see things that are placed in different places. And so I think, you know, it's, it's reasonable for that to, to actually cause some confusion. But, but think about it this way. Okay, my house here in Houston sits on a street that intersects into Beltway 8, the feeder road of Beltway 8, going south. And so for us to go north... We have to go to the end of our street. We have to turn south on the feeder road. We have to then cross over an overpass you know, of Beltway 8. And then we have to go north to get where we want to go. And this intersection there at the overpass of Beltway 8 is notoriously difficult and tricky. People just don't know how it works for a variety of reasons. So pretty much, you know, three out of four Sunday mornings early, I'm driving to church and I can see the aftermath of a wreck. Like a late night something bad happened there. Um, so let's just assume that there's a wreck at that intersection. 
And there are four witnesses to that wreck. Somebody's behind the car that wrecks. Somebody's at the stoplight looking at the car that wrecks. There's a pedestrian that's walking up the sidewalk who has their own perspective. And there's a passenger in the car. So the wreck happens and the police come and all of those people have to give an account of what happened. They have to give testimony. So one of the witnesses says, car A ran the red light and that's what caused the wreck. Now, one of the other witnesses says, I saw the person that was driving car B scrolling through their texts or scrolling through their phone, and that's what caused the wreck. The pedestrian who is walking towards the light says, you know something really interesting? I think that stoplight is broken. It went from green to red with no yellow, and that's why that car couldn't stop in time, and that's what caused the wreck. Do you see? This is all true testimony. This is all history. These people are all giving accurate accounts of what they saw. They're giving accurate accounts of what happened. So what is it that explains the difference in their testimony? It's their perspective. It is perfectly reasonable for multiple people to experience the same event and to describe it differently depending on their perspective. Mark has a perspective. Mark is not simply chronicling the life of Jesus. He is writing history with a purpose. And that purpose is to call you, to call anybody who reads or hears hears these words, to, to call you to decisive action. It is decisive because the gospel of Mark is provoking all of us to make a decision. Is this true? Did Jesus do what he said he did? Did he do these miracles? Did he die on the cross? And did that death on the cross actually serve as a substitute for my sins? Did he rise again from the dead on the third day? You have to decide. You have to make a decision. But it's also action. Because the gospel of Mark doesn't simply leave you at the place of cognitive belief. Mark pushes you to orient your entire life around Jesus. Your savior is also your king. You see, Mark did. He oriented his entire life around Jesus. Uh, Peter, who's preaching this gospel, is based upon, did, and he did it to the point of death. Think about this. Do you know, have you ever considered how many times Peter, the apostle Paul, in fact, all of the apostles and all of the leaders of the early church had the chance to say, you know what? just kidding about the resurrection of Jesus think about that all of these people it was said that there were 500 eyewitnesses to the risen savior after the resurrection do you know how many times they had the opportunity to say you know yeah didn't happen but so many of them and actually Peter had the opportunity to do that when they were crucifying him and hanging him upside down That seems to me to be pretty solid compulsion to not lie if you were lying about something that is out of it. But but they went to their deaths telling the story that Jesus rose again from the dead and not backing away from that testimony even under the most intense pressure that you could possibly imagine. It is trust. 
trustworthy testimony. It is gospel good news. This leads us to our final point. We're only going to look at this very briefly this morning because it's really the subject matter for the rest of this whole sermon series, and that is the subject of this gospel. As is his habit, and this is one of the distinguishing marks of the gospel of Mark, is that Mark doesn't beat around the bush about anything. He gets right to the point. No flowery talk from Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the subject. These are important words. Let's look at all of them briefly. Not all of the words, but the, 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 the names given to Jesus. Jesus is the Aramaic version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. It was the name that the angel of the Lord commanded Mary and Joseph to give this baby that was born in the manger, uh, even though Mary was only betrothed to Joseph and was still a virgin. It is signifying as a name the mission of Jesus, the one who came down from heaven to seek and to save the lost. Christ, or Christos in Greek, means anointed one. It was a word that first century Jews would have been very familiar with because it was a word denoting the Messiah, the one who was going to come and was going to restore Israel to its own rule and be the hope of Israel. So Christ is much more than a word for a king. In the first century Jewish mindset, it was a word for the king, the king who was going to come to restore the fortunes of Israel. But, and this is important, in the gospel of Mark, Mark makes an astounding claim right off the bat. This is no mere human king. Mark knew something that is true, that over the course of the 400 years since the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, many messiahs had come. There had been many messiahs who had come and had fought on behalf of Israel trying to restore their fortunes. Some of them had actually been pretty successful. But a couple of things are true about those other messiahs. One is that the gains that they actually made were ultimately reversed. And second, they all died and stayed dead. That's pretty important as you come to the testimony of Jesus. But, But what Mark says is that this Christ... This king, this Messiah, is also the son of God. There is absolutely zero way, zero, none, no way that anyone from a Jewish background, any original reader of this text, anyone who ever heard this text in the first century for the first time could possibly interpret those words other than as a claim to divinity. This king, this Messiah, this Christ is God himself. And if they didn't get it the first time, Mark goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah and claim that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of a first part of this prophecy. That he is the voice crying out in the wilderness. And what does the voice crying out in the wilderness say? Prepare the way for the Lord. So if John the Baptist is the voice crying out in the wilderness saying prepare the way for the Lord, who is the Lord? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The King is also the Lord, is also the Savior. The crown and the cross. The Lord and the Savior. That is the claim that Mark makes right here at the beginning of his gospel. The question for us is this. Do you believe his testimony? 
Do you believe his testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It's a claim of truth. It's a claim that will absolutely transform both your life and your loves. Will you embrace that today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its challenges and the hope that you provide for us in Christ. May we embrace him now and live for him. In Jesus' name, amen.